You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. So I'm reading from two passages today. The first one is Revelations 21, 1 to 5, and then we move across to 22, verses 1 to 7. So we'll start with Revelations 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. We've just moved to 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will be no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to them, said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Thank you, Trish, for reading God's Word so beautifully. And thanks, everyone, for welcoming me this weekend. Uh, it's just been most enjoyable being with you. Um, lots of lovely conversations. I must uh, apologize to each of you to whom I've asked your name three times and four times what you do, and I've completely forgotten 20 minutes later. Uh, so I'm massively confused about who you all are. But I've still had so many lovely conversations and most encouraging to be with you and worship with you and see God's work 
amongst you. Uh, thanks to Rory, Roy, 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 something like that. Yeah, it's as good as I can do for praying the story of the Bible so beautifully. Um, what a brilliant recap in prayer of what we've looked at. So, we, yeah, we come to the last uh, piece of the Bible's story. Uh, there it is, the centre of Melbourne, Melbourne CBD. I work there. Some of you do. Uh, you know it well, probably. It buzzes, doesn't it? Um, buzzes for about 20, 21 hours a day, I think. There's a little small downtime between about maybe 2 and 4 a.m. That's about it. Cafes, people, skyscrapers, trams, buses, bustling, endless cafes and restaurants. And, yeah, it's just a noisy, busy place to be. But it's entirely different looking at Melbourne when you fly out. All of a sudden, the skyscrapers become small and almost cute. Uh, there's no noise, there's no rush, there's no bustle. It's a completely different scene. Melbourne looks kind of nice and manageable. We've been flying high over the Bible's story. And there's benefit sometimes in that aerial view of Scripture, isn't there? Most of the time we'll be down on the streets of the Bible. Expository preaching digs into passages, and it's like we're going into different shops and businesses and cafes down on the ground. But this weekend, we've been taking the aerial view of Scripture. And you see different things when you take the aerial view. And we've seen beauty and chaos and relationship and love. And that love of Jesus Christ gives our lives purpose and hope. And so that's where we head in this last look at the Bible's story. Let's start then with Act 5, the purpose that we now have because of the amazing love of Jesus Christ in our lives. It's never great using something for what it was never intended. You can sleep in your car, but I generally find it's better to sleep in a bed and drive in a car. You can do it, it's just not great. I have a screwdriver at home that is severely bent and twisted. I've used it for all sorts of things. It is my go-to screwdriver. I've prized off bricks with it, cleaned out cement, um, opened cans, uh, chipped paint. I just do everything with a screwdriver. But there's now one thing that my screwdriver cannot do. It cannot screw screws because it's screwed. <laughs> now, when we try to live our lives for something other than what we were intended to live for, we become wearied and burdened and cheapened. 
if your purpose in life is to please people, impress the boss, live up to your parents' expectations, make the people around you think that you are amazing, if that's your purpose in life, you will be exhausted. It is exhausting trying to live a life where you're constantly trying to please and impress other people. If your purpose in life is to make money, to acquire possessions, to improve your standard of living, to have more and more, you will never be satisfied. You will never have met the level of acquisition and material possession that satisfies your soul. The more we have, the more we want. Hey, we are already in the wealthiest 10% of the world, easily. And we want more. You will never be satisfied if you make that your purpose. And if your purpose in life is merely to survive, just to get through, <laughs> chances are you won't. Because it's just not a very inspiring or motivating way to live just to survive another day. So what is our purpose? What are we made for? Well, the Apostle Paul has some great one-liners on that. Here are some of them. 2 Corinthians 5, he says, uh, He died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says in Colossians 3, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord, not for people. Or 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Now, if we were to meditate on those verses, we'd start to see some theme tunes, wouldn't we? That What's our purpose? Not living for ourselves, but living for the Lord, living for the one who died for us, who lives in us, who has given us new life. That's now our purpose. We have died. We've been raised in Christ. The new life we have is in Christ and for Christ. Our purpose is to live for him. You may well know the uh, famous statement of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer one, the chief end of man, that is the ultimate and supreme purpose of people, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's our purpose. That's your life mission statement. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And you may know uh, John Piper's spin on that. We glorify God by enjoying him forever. We've seen that God is beautiful and he designed us to know him and to be satisfied in him, to treasure him, to find peace and hope and love in him. So it's as we enjoy God and make him central in our lives, that we glorify him. 
when we live that way, we are living in line with what we were designed for. And that is soul refreshing. Like I said, it will wear you out trying to live for things that you weren't made for. And it will actually refresh your heart and soul as you live in line with your God-given purpose. So, uh, actually, haven't got a slide on it. I'll just mention the stuff and then look at that quote. Um, this is just, there's just a reminder here of what your purpose isn't. Let me just underline it. Your purpose in life is not to make money. You might make money. Money's nice, good, useful, does all sorts of good things. But your purpose is not to make money. You could walk away from making money and not have a diminished life. Your purpose in life is not to make a name for yourself. It's not to be a success story. It's not to be amazing or famous. Your purpose in life is not to get an ATAR of 99.95 and then an incredible degree and an amazing job and get married and have kids and travel the world and retire comfortably. That's not your purpose in life. You might do all those things. I've done a bunch of them, except the ATAR. Uh, but that's not my purpose in life. Your main purpose isn't even to make the most of this life. Your purpose isn't to have every experience you possibly could. And as many wonderful opportunities as possible. And to travel as many places as you can. And, and to just live the richest most wonderful life, but that's not your purpose. You might end up doing some amazing stuff. You might not. God might assign a very hard life for you. You, you, you might struggle a lot. You might be weak. You might be sidelined in many, many ways. Most of you will end up in aged care. I'm going to beat you to it. And when we're struggling in the last few years of life and we can't do that much and we're weak and we're weary and we're dependent on others for care, a lot of our friends have died, and maybe our life partner's gone, will your life still have purpose? Not if it's been about all that other stuff. But if you've been living to glorify God and enjoy him, then your life still has purpose in aged care. God would say to us, many of our dreams are too small. C.S. Lewis put that in a very striking way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures falling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I wonder if you're too easily pleased with 
small ambitions in life. Whatever we do, uh, in our leisure activities, in our work and occupation, in church, we always have a greater purpose than the thing that we're doing. We purpose to love God as we love the people around us. We purpose to serve God as we serve people. And I'm not just talking about serving people at church, that's great, but as you serve clients and customers and bosses, as you serve patients and customers, we're serving God. It's the Lord God we're serving. If you, I don't know if any of you do, but if you sweep streets as your job, I'm not going to ask any any, uh, street sweepers here, but um, if you sweep streets for your job, you are sweeping streets for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you better be the best street sweeper in the world because you're doing it for Jesus. If you're making budgets, preparing food, changing nappies, holding the hand of an old person, you're doing it to glorify God, to honor him, to serve him. There are a thousand different ways we can do it. You don't have to leave what you're currently doing and become a full-time gospel worker. You are in full-time ministry. Every single one of you, wherever you are. You have areas of ministry, places where God has placed you to serve him, honor him, glorify him. Now that purpose that we have is tied to a mission. We call it the Great Commission. The commission that Jesus gave to make disciples of all nations. That's why the Holy Spirit was given. When Jesus ascended, he put out the Holy Spirit on the church, uh, not for us to have exhilarating personal experiences, but so that the Holy Spirit might empower us as God's people to spread the message of Jesus Christ to others. The Holy Spirit came and kick-started an unstoppable movement. Only about 120 people initially. After the first sermon, there were 3,120. It was an amazing day of gospel harvest. And it kick-started the growth of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has now gone to every continent, to to every nation, Uh, is now the world's largest religion. It's astounding uh, what Jesus began so small, so insignificant, and so weird, a Jewish guy murdered by the Romans on a cross, that movement has gone to the ends of the earth. People are being saved. Many many people in this room have stories of being saved, most unexpectedly, most wonderfully. God has a mission in this world. And when we make it our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him, to be about Him and not about us, then we join in His mission. But interestingly, the the New Testament doesn't have that many overt commands 
to evangelize. Uh, the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. But there aren't that many commands in the New Testament to share your faith and tell others about Jesus. Why not? I think it's because it wasn't necessary to say it. It was the spontaneous, natural outflow of what had happened in people's lives. Uh, think about how it works in other spheres of life. What do, you, what do you do when you see something absolutely incredible and beautiful? You probably take a photo of it and post it on Insta or something like that. You, you want others to know about what you have just seen. What do you look forward to doing if you're expecting a baby? Telling people that you're expecting. Maybe you're going to wait until 12 weeks and make sure that everything's safe. And then you have the excitement of telling them, we're expecting. And then maybe the excitement of telling them what the gender is going to be. And then the excitement of announcing the birth. We love to tell good news. Okay, I'm in the next generation now. What do grandparents love to do? They love to share photos of their grandkids competing for who has the cutest grandkids. Well, show over. <laughs> I've got the cutest grandkids, uh, so don't bother competing. <laughs> this is what we love to do, eh? These are some of the, the dear little children in my life. When something is precious to us, when something has moved us, when something is wonderful to us, we want to tell others about it. And so if your heart has been moved by the deep, deep love of Jesus, if, if what God has done for you is the most precious and most amazing and most moving thing in your life, you'll want others to know. That doesn't make it easy. You've got to struggle. Oh, do I talk now? How do I talk? I feel inadequate. They're going to ask difficult questions. Ah, oh, yeah, of course. And uh, people don't necessarily want to hear your story just a little while ago in our culture, we were dated, weird, um, irrelevant. Oh, for the good days when we were just dated, weird, and irrelevant. Now we're offensive, bigoted, divisive, dangerous. But that's not going to stop us uncomfortable. I wish it wasn't perceived like that. But the reality is, we've got a message that's worth telling. Our purpose is to glorify God, not ourselves. And so along the way, we're going to try and see if we can't tell other people about what has changed our life. So here is the soul-satisfying move from Act 5 of the Bible story. Purpose to glorify God and make him known. Make it your purpose to glorify God in everything you do and make him known to anyone you can. That will be costly. 
And actually tying in with an earlier stage of the story, it will be complicated knowing how to do that. The Bible's not cookie cutter. It doesn't just give you a nice little blueprint for the rest of your life. You're going to have to nut this out and wrestle and pray and talk and search. So how do, how do I, in this stage of life, in this job, in this situation, how do I glorify God and how do I try to make him known? It'll be costly. It'll be hard. But have a look at this quotation from Os Guinness. He says, just as a weak flame is blown out easily by a small breeze, so a weak faith may be extinguished quickly when it encounters evil and suffering. But real faith is more like a strong flame. A storm only fans it into an inextinguishable blaze. And so that's what we want, isn't it? Strong faith in the Lord Jesus, where the winds of conflict and opposition and pushback just fan the flame more and more and make us more determined than ever to live for the glory of God and not this world and to make Jesus known wherever we can. And you will find, friends, if you make that purpose your purpose, it will actually refresh your soul. I'm not saying it will make your life easy, but it will refresh your soul as you live in line with what God made you for. And we don't do that with gritted teeth and endless frustration. We do it, rather, with constant hope. And so we come to the last stage of the Bible's story. Over about a 10-year period, we renovated our house. I bought a pretty dated old place and could afford to do one room a year. And so we worked through the house, renovating each room. Each was quite exciting and fun, as we saw after a lot of hard work. Um, a room transformed. For me, the standout uh, room was what we used to call the family room. It was disgusting. Uh, it was. It had this um, 1970s long shag pile carpet, which was absolutely filthy. It had a low ceiling with almost no lighting. The walls weren't lined. It was just brick. And uh, the whole place, it was just dark, dingy, and shabby. So that's why we um, called it the family room. We sent the kids down there. Uh, that's where we sent up the family computer and you know, just, no, just go to the family room. And we would try to avoid it if we possibly could. Then we renovated it. The ceiling is now light. There's, there's lovely lighting in there. This big double opening door out onto a deck. We put in a wood burner on there. My wife and I just so love evenings in front of the wood burner down in the family room. Uh, it's now actually probably our favorite space in the house. Just completely transformed. We love it there. Well, God is going to do a renovation of this world. Uh, everything that is dirty, dodgy, and disappointing will be utterly stripped away and changed. 
And we have a glimpse of that in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, The Apostle John is um, given this revelation, this vision of the future and of heaven. He has this heavenly tour guide, an angelic tour guide. And John in these chapters sees three things. And I want us to just try and quickly see what John saw. First of all, he sees an incredible new world. Uh, Love you to have your Bibles open as we look at some verses here. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That is to say, I saw a new universe, a new cosmos. In Greek, there are two different main words for new. Uh, One word is neos, like brand new, completely new, new in time and in origin. The other word is kainos, which is new in nature, new in quality, renewed. And it's that word that is used here. This is not a brand new universe. This is a renewed universe. You might remember it says in 1 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That is, if you're in Christ, you become a renewed, recreated person. You don't become a different person. That would be quite disturbing, wouldn't it, if every time someone got saved, they just disappeared off the planet and, whoo, there's a new person there instead. Oh, who are you? Like, no, it's the same person, but that person changed, renewed. And one day, God is going to do that, not just for the the many, many millions of people he has saved, but he's going to do it for his entire creation. He's going to renovate it. This is God's extreme makeover of the cosmos, which means our eternal destiny is not some ethereal realm floating around on the clouds wearing robes and gowns and strumming harps, which for some reason the average Aussie bloke doesn't really aspire to. And I don't blame him. No, that is not our destiny. Our destiny is a world as real and tangible and physical as this one because it will be this one. This one renovated, renewed. And in that new earth, it will be heaven on earth. That's why John sees a new heaven and a new earth and the two are together. Heaven and earth as it were, are united. God will be there. There on the new earth with his people. And that's why it says in verse 4, he, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And so friends, that means there's a day coming when no kid will go to school and get bullied. No person will be sent off to war and be killed. Never again will parents grieve over a wayward child. Never again will a woman have a broken heart because her husband was unfaithful or someone abused her or she had to post yeah, me too 
Never again will someone be mistreated because of the color of their skin. Never again will anyone fear violence. Never again will people struggle endlessly with physical problems or tormenting mental health issues. Never again will anyone be persecuted for following Jesus. How good will that be? There's so much sadness, isn't there, in our lives and in our world. Sometimes I wonder, you might wonder, how much more can I take? Well, one day, you won't have to take any more. How come it will be so good? Verse 3, it says it's because God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. We saw that that was the covenant theme tune all through the Bible. They will be my people and I will be their God. And now that will be perfectly the case. The new earth where we will live will be saturated with the presence of God. And therefore there will be no sin, no evil, no crying, no pain. That's the first thing John sees. Not bad, huh? Uh, then the heavenly tour guide shows him something else. Shows him an amazing new city. If you uh, look at verse 2, it says, I also saw, so he sees the new heaven and new earth coming down, being revealed, descending on this earth. He also saw, says, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride. So he sees a city that looks like a bride. And uh, in Revelation, you have lots of symbolic picture language. And you've got to work with the images. Don't take everything too literally. This is picture language. So he sees a, a city descending, and the city looks like a bride. And if you go down to verse 9, you actually get those two images again. Come, says the uh, heavenly tour guide, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So again, you've got the fusing of these two images. The city, which is the city of the people of God, it represents all the people of God. The city is a bride. And we know that that's the language used of the church as well. Both of these images are the images of the church, the people of God. Uh, well, like Adam, I've taken a bunch of weddings. And one of the nice things about taking weddings is you stand at the front, um, you, you're up there. When the bride comes in, and I can tell you this, she always looks magnificent. Doesn't matter what she looked like the day before, on the day she scrubs up well. Every time, always beautiful. And one day, the church of Jesus Christ will scrub up perfectly. One day, 
I mean, some of you think this is already the case, but one day you will belong to a perfect church. One day, the church of Jesus Christ worldwide will be a church where there are no scandals, no abuse, no disappointing leaders, no dud sermons. How good will that be? One day, we will be part of a perfect people of God. That people of God, a beautiful bride, is also described as a city. We don't have time to unpack it from verse 9 to 27. There's a description of the city. It's described with precious jewels because this is a beautiful, like a, if you like, a glamorous city. Uh, it's described with massively high walls and great gates. It's a secure city. It's, there's pictures there of a, a city where there are no slums and no dodgy neighborhoods and nothing defiled or ordinary or scary. But the thing I want to particularly highlight is if you, if you go down to verse 16 and following, you see the, um, the, the, the angel, the tour guide, measures out this thing, and it's 12,000 stadia wide and long, which is really helpful. Um, that's actually about 2,000 kilometers wide and 2,000 kilometers long. We're talking one dirty great big city, okay. Well, one clean great big city. Uh, that's a city that um, extends in size uh, from Adelaide to Perth and Adelaide up to Darwin in the other direction. It's just insanely large. But then there's the thing that tops it off. It says also that it's 12,000 stadia, 2,000 kilometers high. Now, at this stage, again, we've got to remember, we're dealing with Revelation picture language. I don't think this means that there are going to be some 2,000 kilometer skyscrapers there and you're in deep kimchi if you are on the penthouse of one of those and you're waiting for the lift. Like, you know, I don't think that's the literal picture we should have in our head. Rather, what it's describing is a city that is an enormous cube. And if you've done your biblical theology carefully, you will know that there was something else that was a cube. It was the most holy place in the temple. The place where God revealed his glory and where God was present in the most powerful and awesome way. And what this picture is doing is it's taking the most holy place and saying, that has gone global. The whole place of dwelling for God's people is the most holy place. That's why it says down in verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city. It's like John's Lord say, where's the temple? I did not see a temple because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. 
He's saying this, this whole city is the temple of God. This whole city is the dwelling place of God. And so there we will live in a real world as real as this, but it will be like always being in the most holy place, always in the presence of God, always saturated with the reality of his glory and his beauty and his justice and his mercy and his grace. Everything that we know about God, that will surround us and be our constant experience. And so finally, last picture, John sees a beautiful new garden. Now, we saw that the whole Bible story began in a garden, the Garden of Eden, a place of beauty and intimacy. Everything was right and good and lovely. That was lost through the fall, through the chaos of sin. And we embarked on this endless chase for paradise again. One day, Paradise will be more than regained. Again, just as the temple has gone global, now we have a picture of the Garden of Eden going global. The initial garden now becomes a description of this entire new heaven and new earth. Revelation 22 picks up the imagery of Genesis 1 and 2. Let me just mention it very, very quickly. Uh, In Eden, a mighty river flowed and fed four other rivers. So it was lush and fertile. And now we read in Revelation 22, verse 1, He showed me the river, the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city street. The the river of life is there, giving life to everything. You notice next, the tree of life is back. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden so that... They wouldn't eat from the tree of life and and lock in eternally their fallen condition. But now that they've been saved and ushered into this new earth, the tree of life is there. Look, the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The tree of the leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's a picture of God now giving life to everyone and everything continually. Verse 3 says, the curse is gone. The curse under which we still live, removed forever. And the climax yet again, as always in these pictures, is the presence of God. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. What a glorious conclusion to the Bible story. Just as Adam and Eve had fellowship with God in the garden, so we will have fellowship with God eternally in a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Yesterday the pies won. Yes. How do footy fans feel when their team wins? Ecstatic. They go nuts. Partying comes easily. They're exuberant. It's like, whoa, this is the best ever. That's the day they wait for. That's when a footy team wins. How will you feel when your God wins? Wins over sin and death and evil, recreates this world, makes us his bride forever, ushers us into an eternal and glorious city where he is present, gives us 
work forever in a new earth that's full of meaning and purpose and joy, gives us relationships that are rich and abundant and never go wrong, where it's not complex any longer and all the chaos of my life is out of it, how will we feel? <laughs> oh, it'll be magnificent. It'll, it'll be so good. We will be full of joy and praise. Praise will come easily. Now sometimes it comes real hard, doesn't it? Praise and joy will come so easily. So here it is. Uh, paradise is back, the river is back, the tree of life is back, the curse is gone, God is there. Live with the sure hope of everlasting joy. As you press on through all the muck and complication of this life, as you try to glorify God in everything that you do and make him known to as many as you can, do that always with one eye on glory. We will keep struggling now. I just have to, I've got to be the realist. We struggle with our bodies. They mess up, play up, get sick, go wrong. We struggle with our sin. We fail and we feel awful about it. We struggle with sadness and disappointment and grief and worry. We struggle with the mess of our world. We worry about stuff, worry about politicians, climate change, war. At the moment, we are walking by faith. And it's hard. It's hard walking by faith. But one day, you won't walk by faith anymore. You'll walk by sight. You'll see Jesus. You'll see the fulfillment of all his promises. And all of a sudden, it'll get easy and joyful all the time. So I'm done. Here we go. Here's the summary. Feed your soul, friends, on the beauty of God. Readily confess the chaos of your heart. Cultivate richly honest relationship with God. Daily depend on the limitless love of Christ. Purpose to glorify God and make him known. And live with the sure hope of everlasting joy. What I think the Bible's story offers us is daily beauty, daily confession, daily relationship, daily love, daily purpose, and daily hope. That's good news for your soul every single day. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord God, for the amazing story of the Bible. The Bible's so big, and yet the storyline is understandable and beautiful, and we thank you for it. And we pray that you would help us to live in the story, to experience it, and then one day to see the fulfillment of your story when Jesus comes again. Hold us tight until then. Please use us.
all the way. Uh, Help us to be real and honest with you as we journey through life and bring us to our eternal home. And may all this be to your great glory through Jesus Christ. Amen.